Welcome, everyone, to Tribe Tel Aviv and the Sunset Series. Thank you, Shanna. And uh, it's our pleasure to have Ido Aroni Arnov join us tonight. Thank you, Ido. And uh, it's now into the third week of the war since October 7th. And um, things are developing, and we're very much look forward to hearing from you um, how you see these developments. And on many different fronts, Israel, our allies, the world, uh, the media, how that's affecting uh, the attitude towards Israel. I'd like to share Ido's bio with you and uh, some of his background. So Ido Aroni was born to a, uh, uh, a Jerusalem family here in Israel, and um, he spent 25 years in the foreign service and in the field of um, uh, Israel advocacy and uh, as a public figure in Israel's foreign service. He, oh, excuse me, it was a Tel Aviv family that he was born to. So all the more appropriate for tribe Tel Aviv. Um, he is renowned for his expertise in public diplomacy, place positioning, and branding. He's a founder of Brand Israel Program and served as the longest serving consul general in New York from 2010 to 2016. And I remember you coming to Fifth Avenue Synagogue to speak many times. And we're very much being a presence in New York for Israel and uh, for the Jewish community there. He's a trusted advisor to global companies, public speaker, university lecturer at Tel Aviv University, writer, investor, and the host of TAU Unbound, the official English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. So welcome, Ido, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rabbi, Rabbi Feldman, and thank you, Shana, for your kind introduction, and such a pleasure to address this forum. I, um, I, I'd i like to uh, tell you how appreciative I am as an Israeli, and by the way, I'm both a Jerusalemite and from Tel Aviv. My family settled in Jerusalem in 1874. That's my father's side of the family. They came from a place uh, in, uh, in Central Asia called Bukhara, Uzbekistan today. My mother's family settled in Tel Aviv in 1912. My father's uncle, Shmuel Koel Yohananov, was one of the original founders of the city of Tel Aviv in 1909. So when you go to Rothschild Boulevard and you see that big stone with the names inscribed of all the founders of Tel Aviv, my great uncle is in there. His name is Shmuel Koen Yohananov. And he was from Bukhara. All right. So I prepared a few slides for you. I would like to go quickly over the slides so that we have time for Q&A. I told the rabbi that I would like to concentrate more on the international relations side of it, talk a little bit more about the um, reputational crisis that we're facing. What can you do to help? I think it's a big part of of the conversation. So I'll go very quickly through the slides. Um, Obviously, I don't have to tell you, you like me, you were all glued to television screens and tablet screens and to websites and newspapers and so on just to hear about what happened. But I want you to know that this was done in order to create a shock. And one of the professors that I spoke to described it as a pre-civilizational type of behavior. So this is a behavior not known to civilization, not known to human beings. Of course, it is known. I mean, we, we, we all know about the Holocaust, but there was a purpose for it. 
And Israeli philosopher and historian Yuval Noah Harari, that I recommend all of you to follow his uh, interviews that he's doing in international media, his podcasts, because he brings really the the right perspective. It's personal. It's global. People that don't know much about the Middle East can relate to Yuval Noah Harari's view of what's happening. And what he claims is something very, very deep and profound. He's claiming that the reason why they celebrated their brutality, because this brutality was displayed before by ISIS and other organizations, by the way, also against other Muslims. If you remember the way Hamas kicked Fatah from uh, the Gaza Strip in 2007, same type of brutality. Um, the Jews that lived in uh, in Eretz Israel pre-statehood, um, there were many, many instances of shocking pre-civilizational Arab brutality, uh, including mutilating dead bodies, of course, raping women and all those things. So the question that Yuval Noah Harari is asking is, why did they celebrate it? It's one thing to do it, but why did they want the whole world to know about it? And of course, the the answer is, uh, there are two answers to that question. The first is that they wanted to instill fear, existential fear in us. Secondly, um, they wanted to strip us of our own humanity. And that's a very profound observation. Now, we need to state the obvious, because sometimes people don't even understand that one of the frustrations that we all have when we see all those uh, pro-Palestinian demonstrations is that we feel that people don't understand the obvious things. And the obvious things are that Hamas has nothing to do with the national aspirations of the Palestinians. So this is not about Palestinian statehood. So this is really not about free Palestine. If anything, it's about freeing Palestine of Hamas. And secondly, Hamas is not about a better future for the Palestinian people. So forget Palestinian nationalism. Even their raison d'etre, when they were founded, they were founded as a welfare organization. Even that, they're not doing. They don't take care of the Palestinian people and of the 2.1 million Palestinians that live in Gaza. Very few truly and genuinely support them wholeheartedly. Most people despise them, but they're afraid to say so. And, of course, another piece of obvious information that we need to share with people, of course, is the story of the Gaza pullout. A lot of people are unaware of the fact that at one point, Israeli government practically fulfilled the Palestinian territorial fantasy by handing over the Gaza Strip. I saw there was a, uh, a piece of a video a video clip uh, um, uh, being sent around um, Hillary Clinton stating that fact in one of the APAC conferences and delivering a very passionate speech about the Palestinians had a chance to turn Gaza into something beautiful, but Hamas instead, as a destructive organization, as a deadly organization, turned it into really a trap. That's what it is. It's a one giant trap. Now, again, when we state the obvious, we must remind people of Palestinian historical rejectionism from the 1937 uh, rejection of the Peel Commission recommendations to the partition plan presented by the United Nations. Of course, the Khartoum summit with no to negotiations, no to peace, and no to everything, no, no, no. 
Clinton Plan 2000, the Gaza pullout we mentioned, and of course the Omer Plan 2008. However, and this is very, very important that we as Israelis understand that. Despite of what some people say in the political sphere, this event, however painful, however difficult to deal with, however unprecedented, is not on the same level as the challenge that we faced in 1948. And so to frame this as our second war of independence is reckless and irresponsible. Why? Because Israel is not being threatened. Our very existence is not being threatened. In 1948, we had no economy. There were 600,000 people here. We had no ammunition. We had no weapons. We had no soldiers. And the soldiers that we did have were not excellent, like we are, like they are today. We did not have the support of the United States. We did not have the support of the Soviet Union. The only people that supported us were either world Jewry, especially American Jewry, or governments that we paid money to, like the Czech government that sent us wep- weapon and equipment because we paid them. They had the Canadian government and the Brazilian government that were supportive diplomatically, but not financially. We were tiny. And we didn't have any other global support. Today, look at Israel today. Israel enjoys the support of the United States. The visit of President Biden is unprecedented. It never happened in the history of the United States. I mean, he did go to Ukraine, but he did not go to Ukraine 10 days after the war started. Unprecedented the level of support from the United States. 412 members of the Congress out of 435 supported the, the the aid package, unprecedented. Germany, United Kingdom, India, the most populous nation in the world, France, Italy, and of course, look at the Arab world. They're not saying much. Yeah, Turkey said something. Uh, it's part of the Muslim world. But the Arab world is not saying much. Israel is bombing Iranian targets in Syria. Nobody's saying anything. Israel is bombing in southern Lebanon. Nobody's saying anything. Israel is advancing with the armored vehicles and commando units in Gaza. Only now we we learned that one of the female hostages were was freed thanks to a special forces operation. Nobody's saying anything. So the Arab world is not on Hamas's side. It's very important to to mention that. So despite of the subjective feeling that many of us have, that this is a direct threat to our existence, and it could, it could evolve into a multi-front conflict. And even then, a multi-front conflict cannot destroy the state of Israel. It will be difficult. Many people will die. Life here for a while will be unbearable but it will not destroy the state of Israel. We are 10 million people. We're projected to be 18 million people by 2050. We have enough firepower. We have enough weaponry to destroy the whole world if we wanted to. And that is really at the core of Israel's deterrence. Now, let's talk about the big picture. So what happened happened between us and Hamas, but that's an illusion. Because what really happened is that 
this was part of a, a global effort to undermine the United States, led by Russia, executed, masterminded by Iran, and executed by Iran's proxies. In this case, Hamas and Iran is also hoping for Hezbollah to join as well. In the background, the timing is influenced, of course, by the warming up of the relations between the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. That warm-up was supposed to produce diplomatic breakthrough between Israel and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Of course, in the background, the rivalry between the U.S. and China, but pay attention to China. China is not taking a clear side against Israel as Russia is doing nowadays. So what is the purpose of the axis? Why does the axis even, um, um, uh, what's their philosophy? Well, their goal is to bring to an end the era which is defined by theorists as the era of the American peace. What does it mean since the collapse of the Soviet Union? The United States was the number one global power, and, and it was a the number, the most dominant global power, not only because of its the size of its military, not only because it's of its wealth, but mostly because the United States is the number one producer of knowledge in the world. When I say knowledge, not just technology, everything that we use, whether it's content, entertainment content, almost every innovation, medical breakthroughs, most of the stuff comes from the United States. That's the source of American dominance. Now, America believed in the theory of um, democratic peace, meaning democracies do not invade each other. Democracies do not fight with each other. Therefore, America, American foreign policy was based on the need to cultivate democracy. It's failed sometimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. It failed miserably. Uh, they failed in reading what's happening in countries like Egypt, but that's not new. And they, of course, were very alarmed when the Netanyahu-led government was trying to cripple Israeli democracy. They were very alarmed. And that's why Biden did not invite Netanyahu for nine months uh, to the White House. But based on the theory of democratic peace, the United States basically orchestrated an era uh, where Western values were received the priority, and Putin wants to take us back to uh, the pre-Glasnost uh, days. He wants to go back to the glory days, of the so-called glory days of the Soviet Union. And so this is really the backstory. Russia, using Iran, using Iran's proxies, is trying to undermine the United States. Now, you've heard this comparison between Hamas and ISIS, and it's true. They're very much alike in the sense of the level of brutality that they're using, Islamist ideology. ISIS was talking about the creation of an Islamic kingdom. Hamas is talking about Islamic rule. They come from the same school of thought, but there's a one big difference between the two of them, and that is, of course, that ISIS was never sustainable. ISIS was never sustainable because they're expansionists. They wanted to rule a piece of land that was beyond their uh, capacity. They at one point twenty thousand people were controlling territory the size of Texas. This was not sustainable. The United States put an end to it within months. Hamas is a different story altogether. Hamas has a defined piece of land, a small piece of land, fifty thousand people, forty thousand people, a grassroots movement. They have a lot of money that is coming from Iran and Qatar, um, and uh, it will be much harder 
to eradicate Hamas. We'll talk about that. Is, is it possible at all to say that? Uh, than it was to deal with ISIS. The Gaza Strip, 2.1 million people. Very important to understand that the one single largest age group is 18 years old. Bad news. Very bad news for the whole region. The 18 years old is the one single largest age group in Gaza. And again, we have to remember Hamas and Islamic Jihad, both of them participate in this uh, October 7th massacre. Uh, they're not really operating under the Palestinian National Movement. Officially, they're somehow affiliated, but they're actually in competition to the Palestinian National Movement. Another very important point to understand, while we can take out military capabilities of Hamas, we cannot solve the Gaza problem just by using military force. Because what are you going to do with 2.1 million people? Right? There is no military solution to that kind of, of question. And there are no easy fixes. Everybody's talking about the demilitarization of the Gaza Strip. And it's not going to take overnight. It's going to take some time. And uh, and I think that this is also the message the Americans were trying to convey. Here's an example. 1972, the Munich massacre. Israel's government, led by Golda Meir, decided to take out every person who had anything to do with it. It took Israel over two decades to complete that mission. So we may be looking at a generational project here, um, taking out Hamas military capabilities. President Biden came to Israel, among other things, to remind Israeli leadership that they have, in the first place, a hostage crisis at their hands, which is something that they seemed to ignore in the beginning. Some of, some of, the, of the ministers even said in the cabinet, that the hostages, um, they're important, but it's more important to bring to bring down Hamas in, in Gaza. And still is a message that is coming out of the political leadership in Israel. But President Biden came to say, don't forget, I have over 20 people there, hostages. We had tens of American people, American citizens that were killed. This is my crisis too. And I'm here to remind you, this is a hostage crisis first. Very, very important emphasis, which again, Israeli media is not communicating to the Israeli part, to the Israeli public uh, forcefully enough. What are Israel's options? Various scenarios. So the first scenario that a lot of people on the radical right fantasize about is the reoccupation of Gaza. This is not going to happen, highly unlikely. Why? Because the reasons for Israel to pull out of Gaza in 2005 have not really changed. The fundamental reasons have not really changed. The second option, which I believe is what the government is working on right now, is to say we want to disable the military dimension of Hamas, because Hamas is an idea. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, is a mindset, and you cannot destroy an idea. You can destroy military infrastructure, you can destroy, you can eliminate military leadership, and so on. So what would be a victory for us? The expulsion of Hamas leadership, or of course the elimination of Hamas leadership. But how do you reach that? And I say this as someone who participated in the first Lebanon war, and participated in the um, in the battles in West Beirut in June in August of 1982, 
So what happened was we practically deployed a siege on West Beirut. We gave them no other choice. They were cut off water, energy. In those days, there was no internet, no food, no medication. And in the end, the leadership of the PLO, headed by Yasser Arafat, left Lebanon for good. And they went to Tunisia. The only way you can make them get out of the tunnels, they we hear reports that they have enough supplies in the tunnels for several months, let's say three, four months. Okay, you put a siege on them for longer than that, for seven, eight, nine months, ten months. Let's see what happens then. Right? They cannot stay in the tunnels forever. And then the third scenario is that Israel will stay longer than that um than that than the uh, uh short term or mid term um um military uh, operation that is designed to cripple them militarily or to completely eliminate their military uh, capabilities and Israel is going to do there uh, to stay there a little bit more in order to prepare the next thing which will be the answer to the question who will replace Hamas so let's say Israel's best-case scenario happens. We manage to cripple their military capacity. We manage to expel their leadership. We even manage to minimize the number of civilian casualties in Gaza. We, ha- we, we minimize the number of fatalities on the part of the IDF. So it's Israel's best-case scenario. Then comes the question, okay, now what? We don't want to reoccupy Gaza like we did pre-2005, then what? What are we going to do? So there's several options being entertained. I heard a statement today by the Palestinian prime minister that they will be they will consider taking over Gaza only if this will be part of a much larger political arrangement. Certainly, this Israeli government is unable to produce uh, any kind of political arrangement with the Palestinians. Uh, given the makeup of the government. Maybe future governments will have a different position, but I don't know. Um, The second thing that we have to remember is that the humanitarian crisis, and again, the purpose is not to starve people to death, but to create a safe zone where women, children, and the elderly and the sick can go and be under the supervision of the United Nations, the European Union, the United States, whatever country wants to take care of this. And then by doing so, you divide Gaza de facto into two groups, the groups that stays in the Gaza city area, which is going to be in the midst of the fight, and then the group that was rescued from the Gaza city area. And if Hamas doesn't want to allow them to leave their homes, we have the ability to document that and share that with the world. But it's very important for the world to see that we are creating a humanitarian safe haven for women, children, the elderly, and the sick. And we're going to handle Gaza separately. But as I said before, we have to have patience. It's the very beginning of the process. This may take a generation to do away with all the people responsible for the atrocities of October 7th. It could take Believe me, I know what I'm talking about. It could take years and years and years before we do away with all of them. And they may be in Doha, they may be in Damascus, they may be in London, they may be in Istanbul. But I can tell you, 
they opened the gates of hell. And none of them will ever be safe again. None of them. I'm talking about thousands of people. We have to remember that, again, Hamas is a mindset. So when Israeli politicians are talking about the eradication of Hamas, we have to calm them down. It's nice as a headline. It's a nice thing to say. It may sound good. may sound good, but um, you can't really kill the idea that is called Hamas, just as ISIS was crippled militarily, but ISIS still exists as an idea. Same thing will happen here with Hamas. What are the risks? And so far, I must say, I'm very impressed with the way the IDF is operating in Gaza. Um, the risks are, first of all, a very high death toll on the part of is IDF once a, a massive Gaza invasion begins. Um, my impression is that the IDF is not um, interested in doing that. They're actually interested in doing something more creative. And as you can see, uh, it's very ambiguous. The IDF is not sharing with the world uh, their plans, and I think it's a very wise approach to the conflict. Um, another risk is the risk of economic devastation within Israel itself. It's already happening. You have 400,000 young people. The The backbone of Israeli high-tech are all in the army, like my, my, my youngest son, was recruited and so on. I'm sure that many of you know people in the front lines. And uh, so that's the, that's another risk, especially for the tourism industry. The tourism, I can tell you the tourism, it will take the tourism industry years to recover from what already happened. Forget what will happen, but from what already happened, it's going to take years to recover. Years. Um, another risk is, of course, losing global sympathy. We'll talk about that. Um and the U.S. is entering election year. I'm not so sure. Remember what happened to Ukraine in the beginning? The whole world was backing Ukraine. Everybody was feeling sorry for Ukraine. And then two months later, everybody forgot about Ukraine. That's another risk. And then, of course, you have the danger of a full-out, blown, blown-out, full, multi-front uh, regional war. This is the Iranian playbook. Very quickly, you start with a surprise attack in Gaza. Same thing is happening in the West Bank along the fence, <coughs> meaning hundreds of Palestinian terrorists are attacking small communities like the one I live in. Uh, and then, of course, Hezbollah, after we exhaust our energy and we uh, use all of our ammunition and our, our airplanes are tired, uh, that's when Hezbollah kicks in with thousands of rockets. And then, of course, pro-Iranian militias attacking from the Golan Heights, as they tried several years ago. If you remember, hundreds of people marched on the fence. Um, and then the finale, cell, dormant cells of radical Israeli Arabs. And there are many, many folks on the Israeli radical right that are working very hard to make sure that they join the fighting as well. I'm sad to say. And uh, so far, I'm deeply impressed by the behavior of Israeli Arabs. And I think that the brutality of Hamas shocked them as well. Although many of them identify with the plight of the Palestinians, they are proud Israelis. And I saw one study that said that 72% of them, 72% of them 
disagree with what happened and of course support Israeli actions against Hamas and of course men don't not to mention the fact that tens of our victims are Muslims Arab Israelis most of them Muslims some of them are Christians very important story to tell now this is a rep- reputational crisis as many of you are asking what can we do let me just say I'm a great believer in the 10 20 70 rule the 10 represents the people that are always against us the 20 represent the people that are always in favor of what we do. The 70 represent the people that are, aren't, are, are not interested and are not informed. Now, traditionally, Israeli advocacy efforts, what we popularly refer to as Hasbara, target the 10%. And let me tell you, we can't, this is the biggest mistake in the world. To target the 10% is the biggest mistake in the world. For two reasons. First of all, we're wasting energy, we're wasting time, we're wasting money. And secondly, there's nothing we can do or say that will change their mind. Our job as a community, as a Jewish people, as a Zionist movement, is to work with the 70%. The 70% know very little, and they are victims of the algorithm, which means that they want simple explanations to highly complex problems. That's why the word Brexit worked, because it was such a beautiful word. Brexit, boom, drives the message home. Free Palestine, boom, what a what a simple hashtag, right? Hamas equals ISIS, boom, works. That's how the human brain is working in the age of information overload. So what is it that we can do with the 70%, you know, in times of, You know, in in routine times, my message was, let's highlight Israeli creativity. And I've been talking about it for over 20 years, and it worked. really worked, and everybody gives me credit for it. But I don't deserve any of the credit. What can we do with the 70% in times of crisis? Three things that we need to talk to them about. The first is, and here I'm showing you results from past conflicts, just to show you that the whole world is not against us. Um, So what can we do? The first thing that we can do with the 70% is talk about the hostages, especially the children. Why? Because an organization that abducts children, we have 30 children. We have a nine-month-old baby. An organization that is abducting a baby, by definition, cannot be good. And decent human beings cannot support such an organization. And those who demand the release of the children are by definition good. That's one thing that we need to do and we need to do that immediately. We're not doing that enough. Secondly, when we talk about the victims, unlike what the Israeli media is doing, the Israeli media is sharing with us the horrors of the way they died. And that's their job. But we make the mistake and the IDF is making the mistake of using the same messages that they use internally for Israeli public, also externally for the world. It doesn't work. Human horrors are usually a turnoff for people. So instead of telling the world the story of how they died, let's tell the world the story of what life they had. When you enter Yad Vashem, the new, the new exhibit, which was opened in 2004, 
you see on your left-hand side perhaps the most powerful exhibit in the whole museum, and that's a video by Michal Rovner, an Israeli video artist, of children in Poland dancing and singing Hatikva in the 1930s. The power of that piece is the fact that it celebrates their life and not their death. Very important for the 70%. And lastly, I'm begging you, please do not share the videos of Hamas with your friends. That's exactly what Hamas wants us to do. That's part of their plan. And if we distribute the videos with the horrors, and believe me, I had to watch those videos, the videos that the IDF had, because of the fact that I'm briefing so many groups, and and I'm going on a speaking tour, and I'm on television all the time. And so I had to do it. I wish I hadn't. I wish I hadn't, but I don't recommend. And certainly don't send it around, because you'll be serving the purpose of Hamas. What is the right strategic framing? And I'll end with that. The West versus the rest. Israel is an outpost of Western values. It's true that Hamas attacked Israel. Hamas handed Israel a massive blow, unprecedented blow to the Jewish people since the Holocaust. But this blow is not going to destroy us. Israel is much stronger than what people think. And in some cases, it must it is much stronger than what its own leaders think, uh, as you can see by the behavior of Israeli civil society, which is incredible. So Israel is part of the West. It's the West versus the rest. We have to remember that. The West versus the rest. And the way the world is supporting Israel, including statement from the German foreign minister only now, only about an hour ago, uh, when you see that, you understand that unlike what we feel, we're not alone. We're not alone in this. And um, and Israel is very much like part of the, the, uh, the West. These are the hubs uh, where the anti-Israel sentiment is on the rise today. In fact, South Africa, a lot of people don't talk about it, but South Africa is perhaps the most dangerous place in the world for Jews today. Um, and just one last story. This is a, um, uh, a doctor from New York City uh, who was educated in the United States, medical doctor, worked at Lenox Hill, Upper East Side, if you're familiar with that hospital. Um, her name is Dina Diab. And basically on October 7th, she posted um, unequivocal support for Hamas. And I asked myself, what brings a seemingly nice person to do something like that? How can a normal person do that? How can a normal person support? And I don't know if you saw that professor from Cornell, uh, Russell Rickford, who said that this was exhilarating. He described it. It was exhilarating to see Hamas butchering babies. It was exhilarating for this professor at Cornell. <clears throat> now, both of them were fired. But to you, I want to say something. Because I suspect that many of you are you're from North America. One of the things that the Jewish community can do, which Israel cannot do because it's not we're not allowed to do that. But I want you to know, these people are criminals according to the American law. 
Hamas is a terrorist organization. When I apply for visa in America, they ask me, are you a member of a terrorist organization? They ask you like 900 questions. One of them, have you ever been a member of a terrorist organization? Have you ever supported a terrorist organization? I want you to know that every weak-minded student that participates in a pro-Hamas rally at Stanford or UC Berkeley or Cornell or NYU is violating the American law. Not only the American law, the European law. And what we can do as a community is find who they are, find their names. I just saw on Facebook post of someone asking a professor, assistant professor at UC Berkeley for human anatomy. Is asking him, seemingly this guy, it was not a Palestinian, but he was chanting. And he said to him, so tell me, what, what do you mean you say you want from the river to the sea? What do you mean by that? He said, well, I mean that Israel has no right to exist as an ethnostate. So the, the guy that interviewed him is an Israeli, asked him, well, what do you mean by that? He said, yeah, Israel has no right to exist as an ethnostate. That's why I support Hamas. Now, this man, a faculty at UC Berkeley, just said on record that he supports the genocide of the state of Israel. Now, we as a community, we cannot let that go by unanswered. So firing them is not enough. They have to be, and and I know that uh, Bill Ackman is already working on that in the United States, is creating a database of all the students that signed the petition supporting Hamas. We need to do the same through face recognition technologies to every person that participated in every demonstration supporting Hamas in North America and Europe. Create a database and then find out who they are. And we need to shame them, we need to name them, and we need to pursue them legally as much as we can. And this is where you can come in. Israel cannot do that. This has to be done by Americans. This has to be done by Europeans. This cannot be done by Israel. But these people are criminals. This is not a question of freedom of speech. People that openly support Hamas are violating the American law. It's very simple. It's supporting the actions of a terrorist organization. No one said the same thing about Al-Qaeda after 9-11. There was one, I remember there was one faculty in in Boulder, Colorado, and he was immediately reprimanded. But can you imagine tens of thousands of Americans rallying in favor of Al-Qaeda after 9-11? Can you imagine several members of Congress voting against the United States after 9-11? Unheard of. Let me end with this. A Moroccan liberal intellectual, Tahir Benjaloun, said the following. The Palestinian cause died on October 7, 2023. It was murdered by fanatic elements. So this man, who is a darling of the European intellectual circles, the liberal circles, is actually seeing it as a death blow 
to the entire Palestinian cause. That message is not being communicated effectively to the Western world. And lastly, look at this list. It'll make you feel good. These are all the ancient kingdoms and the ancient peoples that tried to destroy us, and they all failed. And let me tell you, those radical Islamists that are trying to do the same thing to us will ultimately fail as well. Your questions, please. Can you put that list back up so that I can grab a screenshot of all of us with that in the background? Sure. Everyone smile. <laughs> all right. Your questions, please. Yes. So I'll I'll open us up to questions and we have some good ones here. First of all, um, uh, first of all, Ido Aroni for prime minister. Uh, that's <laughs> second. Now that that's, uh, you know, people are asking me who's going to take over for, for Netanyahu. And I've had a short list, so I'll have to add your name to it, <laughs> sir. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. You're welcome. So question uh, first, I'm going to skip you, Rabbi Jonathan Feldman, and we'll come back to you. No problem. A question from Roni A. What are the chances for a multi-arena war that would evolve both in the southern and in the northern borders of Israel? I know you did um, you did hit on this a little bit, but people have uh, some deeper questions on it. So maybe you can give it another minute or two. Yeah, so I think that the fact that the U.S. sent such a massive military force here and the fact that they already successfully intercepted the Iranian uh, missiles from Yemen shot by the Houthis, which is another proxy organization like Hamas, like Hezbollah, like Boko Haram in Nigeria. So I don't know if you follow the news, but the U.S. intercepted um, missiles that were fired from Yemen and targeted the hotels in a lot where the families of the people that had to evacuate the South are now being hosted. And so that's very impressive. It's a very impressive thing that the U.S. managed to do that. So the fact that the Americans are here are decreasing significantly the chances of the Iranians intervening. Another sign, the Russians are not saying anything. We are attacking Iranian targets in Syria almost on a daily basis. The Russians are not saying anything. They're not doing anything. And I can tell you, my guess, next step, Israel will destroy all airports in Syria. All airports will be destroyed soon, a matter of days. To stop the transfer and to send the message to Iran. So I don't think that the chances are high. What I was describing to you is the Iranian aspiration. That doesn't mean that the Iranians will succeed. But even if the worst-case scenario happens and hundreds of rockets will fall in the greater Tel Aviv area, the greater Haifa area, and so on, Israel has the ability to respond in such a way that will very quickly change the picture of the war. Um, and so um, I think that the chances are very, very small for a multi-front war. Okay, thank you. I think that probably relaxes a lot of people. Ido, can I uh, jump in? My my last question was, um, 
after October 11th, does, is there more of a, uh, pressing need in Israel to realize that we need to take on Hezbollah in Iran and not wait till they bring it to us? Yes. And if that's the case, wouldn't not when we're embroiled in Gaza, but soon be the time to do it? And is America more likely to be involved in Hezbollah because of the marine bombing of American Marines in 1982, was it? 83, yeah. yeah. So I, the answer is yes. Uh, I don't think Israel is interested in direct confrontation with Iran, but Israel has been at war with Iran for many, many years. A lot of people don't realize it, but we've been at war. The war doesn't take place on Iranian soil, but it takes place in Syria. It takes place in other parts of the world. Iran was behind the bombing of our embassy in Buenos Aires. It was behind the bombing of the Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires, and so on and so forth. So the the war between Israel and Iran is going on for decades. Uh, about your question about Hezbollah, absolutely, absolutely. I think one of the lessons that Israeli, hopefully that Israeli political leadership will learn from this, is that you have to listen to what they're saying. And if they're saying, we want to annihilate you, you better believe them. And don't allow them to accept hundreds of millions of dollars every year from Qatar, believing that they're going to use the money for humanitarian you know, purposes. It was a, a political naivete that is uncalled for. And so I couldn't agree with you more. I will not be surprised if... Months after the Gaza war will be will be over, uh, Israel will um, hand Hezbollah um, a, a an historically devastating um, attack from the air um, in total surprise. I will not be surprised if that's hap- if that will happen. I think that that should happen, frankly. Thank you. Destroying their their massive, um, you know, um, depots of missiles. Next question is, why isn't there more pressure from other countries that I suppose have diplomatic ties um, and their media outlets on Qatar and Qatar's involvement? And why isn't there any financial pressure on Qatar Airlines or Doha Tourism for example. Yeah. So, we you know, hypocrisy is uh, something that we all know. And um, Israel experienced throughout its history, even before we became a state, uh, we were victims of that hypocrisy. For example, the Arab economic boycott of 1945, which was uh, introduced to the world by the Arab League. But many, many, in fact, most American brands of the 1940s, 50s, 60s and 70s complied implicitly, with the Arab economic boycott. And they boycotted Israel. For example, Pepsi, uh, most American hotel chains, all of America's uh, car makers, appliances makers, they did not sell products in Israel until well into the 1990s. The only products that we could buy were from France. And then after the French embargo, that ended too. And... um, and the Japanese boycotted us until the 1980s. So my point is, don't expect the world 
to boycott Qatar. It's not going to happen, unfortunately. It should happen, but it's not going to happen. And the reason is because it's a very wealthy country. They have oil and so on and so forth. Um, and the countries do their own, you know, they do their own calculations. And there is this thing called realpolitik. So, you know, their values, their ethical norms. But at the end of the day, I do what's good for me. And that's how most countries think. And that's how most decision makers operate. And unfortunately, that's hypocritical, but that's the way it is. It's all over the world. It's not just here. Thank you. A question from Yuri. Uh, Uri, he, he wants to know, why is there so much confidence that the majority of Gazans don't support Hamas? He says that he's heard a couple of interviews of Muslims who grew up throughout different Israeli regions, converted to Judaism, or whatever their story may be, and they told that it's a different reality, that most Palestinians are actually supporting Hamas. Well, we know that not to be the case because Hamas is not good. Hamas is oppressing people, killing people, is being brutal to people, doesn't care about them. Why would you like them? So the assumption, it's very, you know, it makes life easier for us to assume that they're all the same. They're not all the same. I had students from Gaza, where I teach. Um, I know they're different. I work with people from Gaza, from people from the West Bank. They don't support Hamas. In fact, I'll tell you, most Iranians don't support the Iranian regime. Now, of course, when someone puts a gun to your head, you'll tell them whatever they want you to say. But don't live under the illusion that all Palestinians support Hamas. They don't. The last time it was checked officially was during the elections. And again, I can't tell you how reliable the elections were in 2000, January of 2006. 45% of the votes went for Hamas. 41% of the votes went for Fatah. That's not a big difference. Um, but that was in 2006. Since then, and again, I can't tell you how credible the results are from 2006. So it's certainly not 100% support for Hamas. I believe that after years and years and years of Hamas abusing the Palestinian people in Gaza, I can't believe that they're very popular. I find it hard to believe. And listen to Musab Hassan, a son of uh, Hamas. Uh, he's incredible. The, the stuff that, you know, you know what I'm talking about? The Green Prince, Musab Hassan. Look him up online on YouTube. Listen to his interviews. And you can learn a lot about how Hamas is truly being perceived by the people of Gaza. And this guy comes from Hamas. Thank you. Uh, another question from Uri, which uh, interests me as well. How, without sharing cruel videos of Hamas to convince people, can we convince people about their horrible actions? People are asking for proof. Yeah, so by the way, people that are asking for proof, absolutely, share with them, please. Absolutely. There was a big difference between people that are interested and people that are not interested. People that are not interested are going to freak out. And they're going to turn off. And they're not going to be with us, not because they don't like us, but because we make them uncomfortable. All right, I'll, you know, I'll share with you something personal. My wife is battling cancer. 
She has a, thank God she's in remission right now, but she had a very tough form of cancer. And we noticed that once she got really sick, um, that many of the people that we thought are were our friends disappeared. Not all of them, but many did. And, uh, you know, they would send a WhatsApp message, but they didn't want to come and visit. And we didn't understand. And then we started talking to other cancer patients. And we discovered it's a well-known phenomenon. People disengage not because they don't care about you. Because they can't handle their own fears. They can't handle their own anxiety. This is too stressful to them. It's the same thing that happens when you share something with someone who doesn't want to see it. Right? If you tell someone, listen, you must see this. And they'll they'll watch it. But it will traumatize them and there's nothing in it for us. But if someone is actively asking for it, yeah, of course. The Israeli consulate did something uh, fantastic the other day in New York. Uh, they brought uh, the media and they showed them the most horrible stuff that was recorded by Hamas. And that was a necessary thing to do. Because you want the media to know, just like I needed to know. Because I go on television all the time. I need to know. But my mother, she doesn't need to know. My daughter, she doesn't need to see that. She needs to take care of her kids. It's, this, she, she knows that something very bad happened. Imagine if there was a video of Jews dying in the gas chambers in Auschwitz. Would you want to see that video? I wouldn't. By the way, one of the reasons the George Floyd video was a watershed moment in American history is because it was viewed by billions of people all over the world. And the slow death that lasted almost eight minutes. When people see this living human being talking to the police officer, and you can see how he ends his life in front of you. It's a shocking, traumatic event that changed American politics. And by the way, I think that... um, Of course, BLM, which was born out of this, was, of course, hijacked by uh, radical elements within the American society. And now BLM, again, is a pro-Hamas, not pro-Palestinian. It's a pro-Hamas organization. They have to pay for it. And this has to be done legally. And again, most people don't understand. It's okay to say free Palestine. It's not okay to say that the massacre was justified, that's a violation of American law. This is not a free speech issue. So then, Ido, why wouldn't we put together a type of video that would have the George Floyd impact and change world opinion like the George Floyd video did? Because you can't win the victimhood narrative You had it because of the magnitude of the attack on Israel. You had it for a few days. 
you had the upper hand in that victimhood um, competition. But there are no winners in the victimhood competition. There are no winners. I'll tell you what, the the most important thing for Israel now is to uh, restore its deterrence and to give and to hand Hamas a very painful military defeat. And we can't, we don't have the luxury of, um, you know, of worrying about that right now. Um, but I would expect our brothers and sisters in America, especially in America and Canada and the United Kingdom, in France, I think that in South Africa, they're kind of helpless. Um, I would expect them to take the action, the legal action, and to pursue those people, not to be afraid of them. Um, I saw the other day the black Hebrews in Chicago were the ones uh, fighting uh, the the pro-Hamas rally in Chicago. The black Hebrews. They were they, they were fighting in the streets, um, and um, I don't know if you had a chance to see Amara Stoudemire's response from October seventh or October eighth. Um, that's a response that we can share with the world. Uh, very genuine, very passionate, very impulsive, but very true. He talked about an angle that not not a lot of people talk about, which is the cowardly act of killing defenseless people. That's a bunch of cowards. He says, very powerful video. Former NBA star, if you don't know who he is. All right, more questions, please. Okay, so we have a question from Ben. He says, hi, Ido, thank you for your se- your session. What is the, can you speak to the aspect of Saudi peace? Um, the, economy, the economic corridor, the gas pipeline, America's heavy involvement, and what's the bigger picture there? Yeah, so the big concern is that Saudi Arabia will back off. I don't think it's going to happen. I think that Saudi Arabia's desire to establish ties with Israel is part of a much bigger strategy. In fact, Saudi Arabia strikes me as the only truly strategic uh, thinker in our region. And their strategy is to transition their economy from oil-based economy, meaning an economy that is based on natural resources, to an economy that is based on knowledge. Israel's economy is based on knowledge, for example. That's why Israel is a natural ally for Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was flirting a little bit with Iran, but they did that to lure in the Americans. Um, And now the Americans really are the brokers of the normalization with between Israel and, and, and Saudi Arabia. It's not so much Israel's work, it's the American work. And so I think that they have enough confidence in their strategy. And again, unlike other Arab countries, to the person who asked me about how do you know that Hamas is not popular in Gaza, the same way I know that the Islamic, the Saudi regime is popular in Saudi Arabia. We know that. Very popular. People love them. Uh, very unusual for monarchies, but they love them. And so it's part of the strategy. I think they have um, the willpower. I think they have the staying power, and I think they have the patience. And so this will be put on the back burner, and we'll get back to it. Maybe 
after the war, maybe when we have a different government in Israel, maybe we, when we don't have the radical right in the government, maybe when Bengvir and Smartrich will not be in the government, maybe that will happen. Uh, but I'm, there's no doubt in my mind it will happen. Okay, great. Uh, a question from Alyssa Abrahami. If our military capabilities are so high, why did this happen to begin with? Why did it take so long for the army to respond on the day of the attack? Yeah, so look, military surprises happen. I know it's horrible, but the United States famously was caught by surprise in Pearl Harbor. Thousands of people died in 9-11. It was a total surprise. Um, and don't forget that the United States ended the war by dropping two nuclear bombs on Japan, killing unimaginable number of people that were not involved in the war because of Pearl Harbor. So surprises happened. The problem was not the surprise. The problem, as you pointed out correctly, is the response time. And that will be investigated. Uh, why the response time, um, you know, was so long? Why the Air Force did not respond quickly? There are so many questions that we need to answer. We're looking for answers. Uh, but definitely. Um, but that doesn't mean that Israeli defense forces was diminished on October 7th. Armies can be surprised. The United States Army that was surprised on Pearl Harbor was an excellent army. Israel was surprised in Yom Kippur in 1973. The army then was excellent, especially the reservists. Obviously, in Israel, uh, and again, we'll have to learn what happened exactly, but there was an overemphasis on the need to um, introduce new technologies at the expense of traditional warfare. When you look at what Hamas did, they penetrated Israel with traditional warfare. There was no high-tech there, very little. But they basically defeated the... We were outnumbered on that Saturday morning for reasons that will have to be investigated, but we were outnumbered. And they invaded with rifles, that's it. So we need to go back to basics, but again... The fact that we had this failure here doesn't mean that the whole army is a failure. Thank you. A question coming from Rich. He says, if Iran had nukes now, the situation would be very different. Um, I'm sure that you'll probably have something to share about that. Why wouldn't, after Gaza is under control, uh, would Israel not denuke Iran? That's a good question. I think that there are several... Um, obstacles it's a definitely uh something that uh we should have done many many years ago when i say we i mean the west and the opportunity of course was after 9-11 um president george w bush in my view made a horrible horrible historically biblically uh biblical proportion mistake attacking Iraq and Afghanistan and not attacking Iran. 
And um, one of the people, by the way, that went to Congress to testify during a congressional hearing in September of 2002, months before the United States went into Iraq, making the case for the U.S. to attack Iraq and not Iran, was an Israeli citizen by the name of Benjamin Netanyahu. And go on YouTube and look at the tape. Um, Horrible mistake. Horrible mistake. I can't even begin to tell you how horrible that mistake is because we would not have faced that evil called Iran today if not for George W. Bush. And he made that horrible mistake. And um, and of course, you're right, absolutely. But what are you going to do now when they have um, developed a nuclear program that is divided between tens of different sites Buried deep, deep, deep in the ground. When you have in the United States a softer and softer and softer public opinion that doesn't want to see boots on the ground, doesn't want to see the Americans involved in any um, military action. Let me remind you what happened in 2013 with President Obama, uh, the famous red line, which he proclaimed. And then, of course, he didn't do anything in Syria. And months later, Putin invaded Crimea. And now we have the mess in Ukraine. It's all linked to the same mistakes. Now, the United States started during the second term of Bush, certainly during the eight years of Obama, a slow and gradual retreat from the Middle East. Once that happened, the countries in the Middle East, including when I say the Middle East, I include Iran in that started to push elbows, started to elbow each other in order to improve their position. And in that big picture, I'm afraid we will not have the support of the United States. Let me make it clear. Israel cannot take on the Iranian nuclear program alone. It's too far. We need to. We don't have the necessary equipment. We don't have enough airplanes this has to be an American-led effort. And I don't think the United States is there. It was not there during Obama. It was not there during Trump. And it was not, it's not there during Biden. And remember, if George W. Bush would have attacked Iran as he should have after 9-11, because Iran was the ideological mother of Al-Qaeda, Iraq had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda we would not have faced this mess today, including Hamas. Don't forget that. Thank you. That was um, that was definitely eye-opening. We have a question from Ben, who wants to know, uh, how can we keep Israel's economy strong? How can Jews help in the diaspora? And do you have any plans or suggestions? Well, I'm afraid, well, Ben, you're right. We are going to ground zero of Israeli economy very soon. It's going to take several months, and tourism will go back to zero, just as it was during the Second Intifada, when we had zero tourists, zero. No tourists came. Um, And, of course, add to that the fact that small businesses are going to crumble because there'll be no, you know, people that own restaurants and cafes and small stores and pop and It's all going to go. I mean, it's going under. We'll go under. So we will find ourselves within six months in what we call ground zero. What will happen then? Israeli government will have to print money 
pour that money into the market. That will increase inflation. So Moody's already predicted that next year inflation is going to be around 6.8%. Uh, just as what happened during COVID. You remember what happened during COVID? Governments printed money, inflation went up. When inflation goes up, your money's worth less. And that's not good for the economy. People have less money to spend and so on and so forth. What can we do? Not much. This is decisions that will have to be designed by Israeli, uh, the central bank, uh, the Israeli government uh, that is responsible for dictating and executing the fiscal and the monetary policies. Um, I can tell you that on a personal level, I'd like people to purchase Made in Israel products, just as we did during the Second Intifada. We created websites where I remember that when I was in New York after 9-11, we created a website that where you could buy flowers in New York, but the flowers will be actually bought in Israel to help the Israeli economy. You could buy products in New York, but you would be actually purchasing them from business owners in Israel. Um, and people don't even know that, right? Where they buy, um, uh, I don't know, a jar of uh, of honey that comes from Israel, actually, uh, or olive oil um, and things like that. Um, of course, encourage people to invest in Israeli publicly traded companies. Uh, one of the things that will happen is, again, happened before. Um, Israeli companies will experience a sharper drop. Uh, NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange and other stock exchanges all over the world. We've seen that before again over 20 years ago. So if after 9-11, you know, you could see a, a drop in the whole market, Israeli stock fell 5 6% deeper. And we can prevent that or at least help prevent that by encouraging and urging people to purchase um, Israeli uh, shares on uh, you know publicly traded companies we have very good companies out there especially in cybersecurity and fintech and so on so there are many small initiatives like that but the big picture will have to be determined by the israeli government great so we're um we're gonna wrap soon i'm gonna give you two more questions if that's okay um one from myself and one from uh benji about hasbara he wrote it here um, he, his, I'll give you his question and then mine. He says, maybe it's the algorithm, but I'm seeing a lot of misinformation about Israel as a European colonial state. Since you spoke of Hasbara, why aren't there more simple explanations coming out from officials about why that claim is not true? And my question is, and I'm not the only person to bring this up. There are women saying that the world order as we know it is old, it's antiquated, and it cannot go on anymore. And there's a call for more female leadership that many people believe will protect the lives of, of people and will be more compassionate moving forward. Can you address the Hasbara and perhaps speak to anything that you understand about female leadership on the global stage? Yeah, so um look, the colonialism narrative is part of that information overload I was t- talking about. So what happens is this. Yuval Noah Harari writes about it in his book, Sapiens. The human brain was never designed to handle so many digital stimulations. It was, the human brain evolved hundreds of thousands of years ago, hasn't really changed. And it was designed to help us survive in nature. So what happens to us 
when we're facing hundreds of digital stimulations every day. First of all, we are overwhelmed. When we are overwhelmed, the level of anxiety goes up, and you see that in the number of suicides since the introduction of the smartphone, the number of people that turn to to mental health, the number of people that take antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications and so on and so forth. And drugs, of course. The opioid crisis is all related to that. Um, Second thing that happens is that when we're overwhelmed, we're looking for a simple solution to very complex issues. Looking at Israel as part of, you know, colonial past and believing in the validity of the new hashtag, decolonization, it's like defunding the police or abolishing the police. Very simple solutions. People say after George Floyd, who of course did not deserve to die the way he died. Right? Of course. There's no it goes there's no question about it. No one should die in police custody. No one. No matter what they did. Right? But then people started saying the problem is the police. Let's abolish the police. I said, well, people, are you serious? Who's going to protect us if you will abolish the police? And they said, well, we're going to have a neighborhood guard. Good luck with that. right? So, Cologne, now, I want you to understand, this is going on. This, this invention is, first of all, European, French intellectual, was introduced to American intellectual circles in the 1960s, philosophers like Sartre and others. And they came up, and of course, Edward Said in Colombia that came up with the idea of Orientalism and the way the the West is treating the Middle East in a romantic way, uh, and so on and so forth. Lawrence of Arabia, if you may. And the narrative is that Israel is part of that European colonialism. Now, I want you to remember something, and many of you are too young to remember, but What was President Barack Obama's first foreign policy move? In 2009, he went to Cairo, came to the Middle East. He went to the parliament in Cairo, and he gave a phenomenal speech about how the conflict is not between the West and the Muslim world, and how America is extending its hand in peace to the Muslim world. Beautiful speech. And he barely mentioned Israel in that speech. And then, instead of going to Israel to address the Israeli parliament, as one would think, and God knows who advised him not to do that, I suspect was one of his Jewish consultants. Instead of going to Israel, where did he go? Do you remember? I'll remind you. After he gave that conciliatory speech in Cairo, he did not come to the Knesset. He basically rebuffed Israel. He went to Buchenwald with Elie Wiesel and Angela Merkel. And he laid a wreath in Auschwitz. And in his mind, that's how you create the balance. What is the narrative? The poor Palestinians are paying the price for the crimes of the Nazis. Because Israel is a European country. Really? Let me show you my DNA. 
My family came here, came here, moved from Bukhara to Jerusalem in 1874. My grandparents moved from Yemen to Tel Aviv in 1912. I did my DNA because my daughter forced me. I'm 100% from this region. 100% meaning my family never left this region. I'm a colonialist. And who says that we're colonialists? A bunch of academics from their offices and places that are called Manhattan and Connecticut. So the whole colonialist narrative is, of course, an academic phenomenon. Now, there is a way to deal with it, but it's an academic way to deal with it. It's not, there is no public affairs way to deal with it. Uh, Obama made a terrible mistake by not coming to Jerusalem that affected his entire presidency. Um, and I think uh, his entire, his decision to disengage from the Middle East is, again, one of the reasons we are facing this mess today. Regarding your question about women, look, the, you know, we had Golda Meir as our prime minister. I'm, I happen to be someone who has learned a lot about Golda. And I know that we would not have had Jewish independence if not for Golda. Golda was the number one fundraiser in the history of the Zionist movement. In the history of the Zionist movement, no one got even closer to Golda. She raised all the money for the underground. She raised all the, she created Israel bonds. She, she was a great public speaker. She was a true leader. So people remember the surprise of the 1973 war. And this surprise that happened to us is five, five times bigger than what Golda experienced. Uh, but I must say that when you look at the way Golda performed during and after the war, very impressive. It's true that she ignored signs coming in from Sadat and so on. So yeah, um, if we're talking about people like Golda, I, I'm with you. Uh, we need we need people like that. Um, but let's see, it's tough out there in politics. I think that one of the problems, one of the obstacles that you see today all over the world is that the people that are drawn to politics are different than they used to be. In the old days, it was mostly people that were drawn to the mission. Many of them did not want it. You know the famous story about President Washington did not want to be president. I don't have to tell you that. Um, but today, a lot of people are drawn to politics because for them it's just another way to uh, self-indulge. They're narcissistic, they're self-absorbed, self-centered, um, not very good managers, as now as you can see what's happening in Israel today. Uh, that's Israeli politics, that's American politics. I don't have to tell you. Uh, everybody's making fun of George Santos, but George Santos, to me, is a very profound statement on the on the state of politics. And I see many parallels between George Santos and AOC, for example, many parallels, which I'm happy to write about. Actually, it's a good idea for an op-ed piece. I hope I answered your question. I'm I'm delighted to see that we haven't lost a crowd during the talk. 
and uh, and uh, good night to all of you from the hills of Jerusalem. Thank you so much for a wonderful, wonderful, enlightening talk. We appreciate you being here with us. All Thank right, you. all right. Good night. Thank you, Ido, and we really appreciate it. We have um very strong Ole community in Tel Aviv, and I'm happy to say that the large, overwhelming majority are still here and uh, are strong and behind Israel. And um, we look forward to getting through this challenge and to continuing to build the future of our country. And you have helped us uh, keep that strength. So thank you. All right. Good night. <laughs> Bye-bye. Good night. Thank you.